BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The future is here, and so is the rise of unmanned aerial systems commonly known as drones. Picture this, an army of small drones sampling the lower atmosphere, instantly filling the gaps in our forecasting ability. This new technology is starting to find a place in the field of atmospheric science and beyond. Our guest today is Dr. Philip Chilson from the University of Oklahoma, who has been working to harness the full potential of drones in weather and atmospheric sciences. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Phil, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is really interesting. Now, you know, we've we've talked about drones on the on the Weather Geeks podcast and on the television show with people trying to fly in and around tornadic storms, uh, supercell systems, and whatnot. But we wanted to have you on because there is a bit more to the story about how drones can help us out with weather forecasting and atmospheric sciences. So we're going to go there. I'm going to get in all into that. But as I always like to do with guests on the podcast, I like to start with the easy questions first. Um, Tell us a little bit about who you are, what your particular background is, and how you got into this. So my name is um, Dr. Philip Chilson. I'm a professor in the School of Meteorology here at the University of Oklahoma. I am also the director for our Center for Autonomous Sensing and Sampling, um, which for the sake of this discussion, you know, heavily relates to the use of unmanned aerial systems, UAS, for monitoring and sampling the atmosphere. So I've had a passion for the weather since I was um, in elementary school and and middle school. So this has been kind of a dream of mine to be able to have a play an active role in, in helping the forecasting community. I must say though, that in high school, I switched gears a little bit and decided to pursue a a path in in physics. So I have all my degrees in physics, Um, but my stream has kept me running parallel with um, the studies of the atmosphere. But I think that this has also allowed me to have a bit of a broader bandwidth, maybe, so I can help harness and tap into different technologies and help bring those into the into the weather sphere. And so I've worked a lot with um, different forms of radar and ground-based remote sensing, like um, lidar and sonar, and also radio sons and ground-based sense um, stations, but. Um, there's always this itch that how can we get better measurements of the, you know, the lowest layer of the atmosphere and um, the ground-based remote sensing was the best game in town. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that, but now I'm finding myself working more and more using unmanned air aerial systems because I see a lot of potential in this technology. Yeah. And I want to uh, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Some of the things that you mentioned there, uh, the, the things that I've worked on in my career as well. So you, you heard uh, Phil mention remote sensing. So just to kind of for the listener that may not be a scientist, what is remote sensing? Well, it it is 
actually taking a measurement from a distance and not directly. So, for example, if you're looking at something with your eyes right now, that's remote sensing. You're using the visible part of the uh, what we call the electromagnetic spectrum to see. Um, you heard him mention radar and sonar and LIDAR. LIDAR uses light or lasers. Sonar uses sound to make measurements, and we can use that information for meteorology. So um, remote sensing is a big part of weather forecasting and analysis. And today we're talking about the use of unmanned aerial uh, systems or drones. I think people are fascinated by drones you see them they're ubiquitous now i mean little kids are playing with drones outside in the in the park or uh, you see news uh, stations using drones for coverage uh, what is the difference between a professional unmanned aerial system and one you might buy at a hobby store well the fundamentally i would say that though a lot of the the drones that you can buy at the hobby store share a lot of you know, common features with the ones that we use for, for research. I would say that we have to hold ourselves to a slightly higher standards to be able to uh, withstand a variety of weather conditions. We have to withstand you know, stronger winds. We have to have more fail safes in place and so that we can navigate the airspace and, and work uh, hand in hand and with the uh, federal, with FAA. Um, so we can keep ourselves in, in, you know, marching along the lines of um, deconflicting the airspace so we can be flying safe with the other manned aircraft. <clears throat> but that being said, um, at the core, they are quite similar. But I think one of the messages that we would like to get to the people is that whereas, you know, drones can be a very fascinating way of going out and just joy flying or collecting videos. But we would like people to understand that we're moving from um, toys to tools. So this is, um, as you said, it's a, it's a fascinating era and they are becoming quite ubiquitous. But there is a distinct um, difference between, in that regard, you know, the ones that you can buy at a local supermarket or, you know, um, mall and compared to the ones that we're actually designing and building and flying for our research. And, and I, I'm curious because, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, we're starting to see more usage of these types of systems uh, in weather. Tell us a little bit, take us back, uh, at least from your perspective as an expert in this field, and, and we're talking to Dr. Philip Chilson, take us back to where did this idea come from to start using drones or these unmanned aerial systems in meteorology? I mean, I, 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 it didn't just kind of come out of nowhere. Is there a history to this or what are some of the first sort of applications that you're aware of? Well, there is a history. And I think that the technology has been bumping up against the regulatory um, requirements for, you know, navigating the, the the UAVs, the drones, the, into the airspace. So Aerosod was one of the very first um, dedicated um, drones for doing atmospheric research. And it was a, we call it a fixed wing. So when you hear a fixed wing, just think about a, an airplane with wings, just like you might imagine any type of airplane. So this was a fixed wing aircraft that was um, gas powered. It had sensor suites on it and had an autopilot. And um, it was doing lots of measurements out over the oceans. Um, I think that 
the trail went cold for a while because I think that the regulatory agencies started realizing that you know we can't allow this uh, type of activity to just proliferate because it would be harmful for the for the people who are flying aircraft with, with pilots in the aircraft. Uh, so there was it was starting to you know metaphorically and literally take off, uh, but then it had to be dialed back a little bit. And this is true in the U.S. This was true in, in Europe. And this is true in other countries. So now we've we're starting to come into a better understanding with the with the FAA and the, for the other country, their civil aviation authorities. So we can really lay out some very um, smart guidelines of how we can operate both the unmanned and the manned aircraft in the same airspace. So the like I said, so the idea has been around for many, many, many years. Uh, but it's now is when the planets are aligning and we're getting the, um, the regulations are starting to be relaxed. You know, we're getting more latitude and where and how we can fly. And the sensor technologies are improving. And I think another component that's really helped this to advance is introduction of the, the quadcopters and the, the, the multi-rotor um, um, vehicle. So anything, either single rotor helicopter or four, six, eight, you know, just the, the rotary wing aircraft versus the fixed wing, because they are easier to control and you don't need as much of a area for taking off and landing. And so that means that the entry level into using this technology has been lessened. But with that comes a whole suite of problems associated with the fidelity and the accuracy of the measurements that you're making. So it's we've been involved in this process for over 10 years, and it's been an arduous journey, but it, now it's a really exciting time to be involved in, in the development of unmanned aircraft systems for doing atmospheric measurements. We're talking with Dr. Philip Chilson, who's a professor in the School of Meteorology at the University of Oklahoma, and he he is also the director of the university's Center for Autonomous Sensing and Sampling. As you heard, he has a BS degree and a PhD from in physics from Clemson University. He also has a master's degree in physics from the University of Florida. I won't hold that against you as a Florida State Seminole here, <laughs> but he he's certainly a a, a great asset and uh, certainly someone that I that we admire in this field. So thank you for coming on. I want to ask you about uh, these larger unmanned aerial systems. I, I spent an earlier part of my career at NASA, and I know that NASA has flown things like the large Global Hawk, which is a very large unmanned system. I, I think people might be surprised at just how large it is, actually. Um, what are your perspectives? I mean, I, I, the systems that you're talking about, as you just described, are, are much smaller systems than some of these systems that we've used to explore hurricanes, for example. And and even I just had a colleague on from Nebraska recently for an episode of Weather Geeks. And I mean, they're, they're, they're using a, a fairly large uh, fixed wing system to fly around supercells. Uh, as well for the Taurus project that, that's ongoing here in 2019. Your systems are much smaller. I mean, the, the Taurus system is even smaller than the Global Hawk, but the systems you're talking about are much smaller in size. Is there any advantage or disadvantage to a large drone versus a smaller drone for this type of work? Oh, yeah, for sure. There's, these are definitely complementary systems. 
um, when you look at something like the, the Global Hulk or the, um, the NASA platform called the, um, the Econa, these are totally different beasts which have their purpose of doing long endurance, high altitude flights. <clears throat> there are many logistical challenges associated with operating these vehicles, but there's great value in the data that you can retrieve from these, but definitely you know, something like a Global Hawk and an Econa, you need to operate through an agency like NOAA or NASA. This is not something for the, for the individual um, universities to get involved with. And, you know, they can carry large payloads, as you, as you said. Uh, people may not appreciate really how, how massive these, these vehicles are and how long they can stay aloft and what the, um, the range is on their, their flight duration. So it's a very powerful platform, and I really hope to see much more research being done with that type of aircraft. Because you can mount, you can mount radar in those. You can have downward pointing radar. You can have downward pointing lidar, and you can have um, sensor packages which are just beyond the scope of anything that we can even consider putting on our aircraft. <clears throat> if you dial it back, then you probably come into the arena of what you were describing with the aircraft um, that's being used in um, Taurus. So it's a, there's a Tempest and there's also a Twister. Um, these were somewhat outfitted and developed you know, by the University of um, Colorado, the University of Nebraska has been using those. We actually have one of those aircrafts also here in our lab that, um, that we use. And these have the advantage of longer endurances, not as long as the um, Global Hawk, but you can maybe fly on the order of you know, 80, 80 miles you know, from one point to the next, um, and then be able to capture the changes in air mass boundaries. You know, for example, you know, people may be familiar with the idea of the dry line. So these um, moist and dry air mass boundaries that come together and that is a place where severe weather can fire. So if you're able to fly that kind of aircraft through and make transects, then you can get a better understanding of how <clears throat> intense that dry line is. Maybe you can monitor its, its movement. So that um, plays a very significant role in our research, also being able to fly around, um, maybe not technically around, but in the vicinity of you know, severe weather and get up close um, to the extent that it's safe and, and be able to back out. So, but the, another paradigm is to go with a, a smaller vehicle. And so what we are spending a lot of time developing and is a, it's, we call it a, a copter sonde. So just like a radio sonde, you, you can use to have a helium-filled balloon to launch a, a sensor package up into the atmosphere, which the weather services do you know, around the world twice a day. They launch these packages and measure pressure, temperature, humidity, wind speed, and wind direction. And then, of course, you get the position and the time back. Um, and that's a very valuable resource for helping us to drive the models, you know, put the data into the models so we can know what's happening in the atmosphere. But the problem is that they're launched twice a day 
and this very sparse distribution of locations where these um, radio sounds are launched from. Now, one can argue that once you get above a certain level in the atmosphere, the atmosphere starts becoming a bit more homogeneous, or at least well behaved, so you can kind of understand <clears throat> from a sparser network of measurements what's happening in the, in the atmosphere. But as you get closer and closer and closer to the Earth's surface, the atmosphere becomes increasingly more complex because of forcings from the, the surface. So you have uh, you know, heat energy being output from the Earth, which can help drive convection. You could have uh, maybe a front coming through and interacting with a mountain ridge, um, which can generate um, different kind of weather patterns. You can have different types of crops that you're planted can have impact on the weather as your urban meteorology is a big topic. So how cities impact the, the meteorology. So to be able to really get down and understand that level of the atmosphere, then most of the technologies that we have just fall short. And this has been a problem that we've recognized for a long time. Um, and so by having a ability to put a copter, a copter sun, it's like a radio sun, but it's a copter to go up, do a vertical measurement and come back down, something we call a profile, and then collect that maybe up to you know, a mile, maybe a mile and a half up into the atmosphere is data that we've really been desperately needing um, up until now in which I think this technology can help us provide. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast and had a, having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Philip Chilson from the University of Oklahoma on unmanned aerial systems and the use of weather, both for research and for potentially increasing our ability to uh, improve accuracy in forecasting. Uh, I thought that was a very interesting conversation about the use of copter technology to do little mini soundings of the lower part of the atmosphere, what, what we in meteorology call the boundary layer, uh, which is that sort of typically that first one kilometer from the ground up of the atmosphere where the land actually communicates with the lower atmosphere. So it's a very important part of our atmosphere for meteorologists. And so uh, I, I hadn't really thought about the potential for the use of uh, these systems in that regard. I, I do know that there has been some discussion about gap filling. Now, you're at the University of Oklahoma, which already has the outstanding Oklahoma Mesonet, uh, which is a ground-based mesoscale network, which provides meteorological or weather information at very high uh, spatial resolution and what that means for uh, kind of conveying it to the non-scientists. There are more measurements spaced apart, uh, very closely, relatively speaking, so that we can really resolve some of the things that you heard uh, Phil mention earlier, dry lines and uh, small differences in temperature or moisture that may be important for a weather event. Is there any thought of a any type of drone infrastructure for a, a high-density observation network or a 3D mesonetwork? Very good question. Um, this is something which gets me super excited 
this is a, a dream that we're pursuing. Um, we're working together with the Oklahoma Mesonet, and I was having a discussion with the director just yesterday, uh, selecting a few sites that we could um, start utilizing for a, a small-scale um, prototype of what we're calling, as you just said, a 3D mesonet. So our dream is to take, there are 120 stations across the state of Oklahoma. They're um, 10 meter towers, which you know, measure a whole suite of instruments um, based on measurements, based on sensors on the tower. And they report the data back every five minutes and they're heavily used by the weather forecasting community. They go into the models. They are used by first responders, are used by farmers and ranchers and the general public. But as wonderful of a resource it is, it is limited to um, 10 meters. So what if you had a station where you could have, you could launch a small drone, um, unattended, autonomously, operationally, it would go up into the atmosphere to a height that still needs to be determined by our ability to work with the FAA up to, let's just say notionally, um, one to two kilometers. And so it, it, it makes a travel up to one to two kilometers up into the atmosphere, is sampling pressure, temperature, humidity, wind speed, and wind direction, comes back down, reporting these data back in real time um, to a central reciprocal, I mean, receiving hub, and then these are then assimilated into the forecast models to help um, drive you know, more precise forecasts. Now, we have 120 stations. It's most likely we don't need one of these um, 3D mesonet stations at every one of the ground-based mesonet stations. So that's something that we're pursuing by doing computational simulations and trying to do an analysis um, in a model sphere to determine what would be that sweet spot of the spatial distribution. We're also trying to determine what would be that sweet spot as far as how often the, the, the drones would be launched. You know, we have, ideally you would want to get the data as often as possible, but then there's also the, the questions of how do you recharge the vehicles? How long does it take to recharge the batteries? We like using batteries over um, liquid fuels just because it's cleaner. So maybe on the order of an hour um, cadence of flights. And then we are feel pretty strongly about the idea that once we can canvas a better system of measurements in that lower atmosphere, which has been um, kind of undersampled historically by putting those data into the forecast models, then we can improve the, um, the granularity and the fidelity of the forecasts that are coming out. And then if we can demonstrate this in Oklahoma, then we can take it to other state mesonets. We're already working with uh, um, Kentucky to maybe implement this technology on their mesonet and also in um, South Alabama. Um, we're been you know, reaching out to some, some other um, states, but and there's also this push for a national mesonet. So if you really want to think big, you could have a whole nation covered with mesonet stations and then populated with these um, kind of autonomous 
stations where data are just routinely collected. And I would love to see the day when people look over and see a drone flying up and it's collecting weather data. It just becomes, of course, you're doing that. Why would you not be doing that? It's, just, <laughs> it's obvious. Just like when people drive by and see a, a radar tower, you know, they don't think anything much more about it. They just know that that's providing the data that we need to improve our forecasts. Yeah, this this is Amazing! This is brilliant. I mean, I, I I think you're very much on to something. I, I you know I, I host Weather Geeks podcast, but you know I'm a I'm a scientist and a researcher at a major university, and my area of research has been urban meteorology. I've I've actually even worked with colleagues of yours out there at Oklahoma, like Jeff Becerra and and others. So uh, I've done quite a bit of work in this area, and, I, and my mind is just racing with all kinds of possibilities, even for what you're talking about. But this 3D mesonet is so intriguing. Um, um, let me just kind of take a step back for the listener, because, again, Phil and I are sort of in this field, so we know the value of high-resolution measurements or filling data gaps. Um, one of the questions we as meteorologists always face is why are there sometimes missed forecasts? One of the reasons is that we're, we're, we're modeling an atmospheric fluid on a rotating body that's changing, and we're using computer models that need data input into them. Oftentimes, many of the weather processes that are, are, are go unresolved, they just are missed by the network of observations because they may be too spaced too far apart or we may not take them often enough. For example, typically a weather balloon goes up twice a day and we know that weather doesn't happen twice a day. It happens continuously. So this idea of a 3D mesonet where you're, you're filling in these ground-based mesonetworks with little drones, I can just see it in my head, little drones sort of hovering up and going up and down sampling the atmosphere and then using that data uh, in our models, particularly some of the higher resolution models that are coming along now, like the HRRR model. I just think it's ingenious. I mean, how how, how far away from this are we, Phil, and, and what do you need? And, and obviously one answer is going to be funding and support. And oh, by the way, if you're ever interested in kind of bringing that uh, some prototyping to Georgia, uh, we do have a, a, a meso network here in the state of Georgia run by Pam Knox at the University of Georgia. So a little selfish sort of uh, plug there for the effort there if, if you do seek to expand. But how far away are we from this in your mind? Well, you hit on the critical feature would be the funding. Um, we Let me step back a little bit and give you some of the requirements that we see for a single mesonet station based on current regulations. So we at the University of Oklahoma, um, we have a very strong radar tradition. And I'm also a member of our Advanced Radar Research Center. So we are um, developing a small radar, which is not meant for detecting weather, it's meant for detecting aircraft. And we're trying to make it as cheap as possible, have low power requirements. So we envision that for a, a station like this, you would have to be able to scan the airspace because, you know, just because you have the legal right of way to be flying your aircraft, you know, the manned aircraft always trump your permissions because, you know, they have people involved. So we always have to be able to deconflict. So we're scanning the um, airspace with our, the radar that we're developing here to see if any general aviation aircraft are, are coming in. If we detect them, then we'll have to initiate some kind of a, a deconfliction policy. There's also the FAA is re, had, right now has a requirement for 
all aircraft by 2020, which is um, next year, to have a certain type of instrument on board. It's called ADSB, which sends out its location. Um, so we can pick up those signals and know where aircraft are, which have this um, technology on board. Um, so those are the fail-safes that we're working with in order to make it a, possible to do this from a regulatory perspective. And then you have to have the um, ability to maybe be off the grid, you know, solar charging stations. You need to have a way of um, housing and charging the the drone after it lands. You need to be able to have um, communication capabilities to transmit the, the data back <clears throat> to some central facility and also for the central facility to be able to communicate to the station in case it needs to change the flight um, pattern that it might be operating on. And then, of course, you need a very robust, hardened um, drone that can go up with its sensor packages and collect the data that we're all looking forward to getting. So it sounds like a very complex um, problem, and it is. And I would say that we've been working on developing a prototype of this system here. And I, I'm going to say we're about six to eight months out from having one that could run unattended, you know, given the regulations. What we'll probably be doing is kind of in the spirit of how self-driving cars are driving themselves, but you have a person in the car We'll have our, our station flying and doing itself. We'll have people out in the field observing and, you know, being, you know, we'll have to have a licensed pilot out there to kind of oversee the operation just to keep it legal. But then hopefully we can make a safety case that we'll be able to untether and then eventually, you know, pull the people back. They can still monitor the operations from a central facility, um, but then the, the UAVs will be able to just do their thing. Um, so that's where we are now. I think if we were to be given the permissions and money, we could probably set up a mini network probably within, say, on the order of five years that could be um, operating. Wow. Just fascinating. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, uh, talking with Dr. Philip Chilson, professor in the School of Meteorology at the University of Oklahoma and director of the University's Center for Autonomous Sensing and Sampling. And you just heard, and look, I've been around this field for a while now, and this 3D meso network is one of the most exciting things I've heard about in some time. And I've, I spent a lot of time working on very advanced satellite missions at NASA and various other places, but I... I hope I don't sound too exaggerated here, but I think this is a game changing idea for weather forecasting, but not only weather forecasting, this technology could play a role in other uh, areas as well, like firefighting and agriculture. Talk to us about what you could see sort of sort of take our crystal ball out. If we have the system implemented and up and running, how how do you foresee this uh, impacting sort of some of the more application sectors that we as the meteorology enterprise? deal with? Well, you're absolutely correct in you know, mentioning um, fire weather, you know, firefighting, um, first response, and things of that variety. I think the area where we have a, a lot of potential for synergy is with the emerging UAV 
um, to, for the drone market. You know, we, we hear a lot of people talk about package delivery, <clears throat> talk about you know, medicine delivery, we talk about blood samples delivery and, and on different um, levels. But what people often forget is that being able to navigate that airspace is going to require much better understanding of what the weather conditions are in that um, lower atmosphere, the boundary layer. Uh, so the, I think there's an, a really good opportunity for a partnership between the private sector and the um, federal agencies to join forces and kind of play in the same sandbox. So the, the, the boundary layer meteorology is an area which maybe doesn't glean a lot of attention from the meteorological community as, as a whole, but I think we're going to be seeing a lot more focused uh, interest in boundary layer meteorology because of the need to understand what's happening in lower atmospheres for the, for the um, commercial application drones to be able to navigate that airspace. And so NASA and the FAA have already picked up on that, and they're developing something called um, UTM. So it's a UAS traffic management. So you can think about it, air traffic controllers for, for UAVs, for drones. And you can imagine that a, a drone may, manu uh, maybe some company says, I'd like to fly my drone from point A to point B. It might submit a flight plan. It might um, tell what kind of platform it has. And so somebody would be able to make a uh, decision, is this particular platform capable of withstanding the kind of weather conditions that might be expected in that, during that flight leg? They might get a green light, they might get a red light. But in order to do that, we need to have much better um, understanding of how the lower atmosphere is behaving. So we can put sensors on the, the commercial drones, they may not be uh, research grade, but by the, by the vast number of measurements that they're bringing in, you know, that could help us better understand what's happening in the lower atmosphere. Meanwhile, we can have um, high research quality data being collected, like for the 3D mesonet and, and other um, paradigms. And so there is this, and then we feed these datas into the into the models. And so I really think getting the, the fidelity and the granularity improvements in those aspects is going to be critical as we move forward as uh, there's so many, so many markets that need better weather forecasting. Um, as, as we start moving to autonomous um, vehicles, even on the roads, you know, they need to be able to anticipate what type of weather conditions they're moving into. It could be that a certain, um, autonomous vehicle is, is rated for being able to travel under certain weather conditions. You maybe have a, a you know a potential driver in the in the vehicle, but they're, they're, that person is in a relaxed mode. But you say, okay, you can expect either icing conditions or dense fog in the next um, uh, in the next ten minutes. So you might need to kind of start transitioning the person in the car or the truck or whatever to be prepared to take over control because the autopilot system in that vehicle hasn't yet evolved to the level of technology it needs to navigate all those conditions. So it's just, it's just a really cool time to be in meteorology and to really play with 
all the different people who need these types of data and think about how we can um, kind of push this forefront um, in forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I want to impress upon the listener that the way we're going to improve for, well, forecasting is very good right now. We've made significant strides over the last several decades. Uh, we're in, I think, a golden era of accuracy with forecasting. But the way we're going to move the needle with these sort of short time frame weather events, uh, thunderstorms that you know really develop quickly or rapidly, is improving our observational network. And so, what we're talking about in the in this podcast today. I honestly believe with the proper support and implementations going to move the needle here. Last question for you, and it's really more of a, a broad societal type question. What would you say, Phil, as someone that works with these uh, uh, autonomous uh, sensing uh, instruments, what would you say to there are some people out there that are nervous about this era of autonomous vehicles and sampling drones and delivery drones. What would you say to calm the nerves of those people that are worried about this sort of automaton society where we have drones delivering packages and sampling the atmosphere and cars driving around by themselves? What would you sort of say there? Well, <clears throat> there's a certain side of me that very much encourages um, that skepticism from the public because I think the skepticism from the public helps allow the scientists to be honest brokers in how we develop and package the technology. Sometimes it's tempting as a scientist to let your your passions and your excitements um, get ahead of yourself and then maybe forget about unintended consequences. So I think it's very healthy to have that input from society to say, yes, what, what if, what if they think, yeah, actually I had not thought about that aspect. Let's go back to the lab and um, take that into consideration. Now, having said that, you know, there have been multiple cases where new technologies have been introduced. There's been a, a bit of a mini hysteria um, surrounding it only to realize that, no harm, no foul, and that actually societies have improved according to it. And then you know, people tend to forget about um, the fears as they realize that you know they were unfounded. Um, it used to be, I, I heard a presentation where the introduction of the, um, you know, just kind of the smaller portable cameras generate a lot of fear in people because, wow, you can actually take a picture of anything, anywhere. But now, you know, with the age of you know, cell phones and selfies and things of that variety, nobody even has any qualms about that whatsoever. So they, it is good that people are cautiously monitoring um, this technology. And it probably is good that we have to kind of put the brakes on a little bit in order to make sure that all the regulatory um, requirements are being fulfilled because I think none of us want to have any uh, harmful situation which brings people's lives into danger. But I really think that it's going, it won't be a not too distant future that Whereas now, you know, we're looking at this technology with a with a gee whiz and wild kind of factor, and I think it deserves that. It would be great if we get to a point where it just becomes a, a routine workhorse, and 
and people are just like now you you don't hear people gushing and ooing and eyeing over introduction and, and the use of weather radar technology and it's still ooh and ah worthy but you know people are kind of used to it and so at some point there'll be the you know the drones flying collecting weather data there'll be the the package deliveries that are being made there'll be the autonomous vehicles and self-driving trucks and, and, and cars and i think you know if we can if we can be smart about how we move forward then it frees up time for humans to not be i think i think human beings should actually take time to be and that's why the word being is right there we, we spend too much time you know, working and trying to you know, achieve just to allow the society a chance to you know, to be who and what we are by introducing these technologies. So that's, that's, um, that's my vision. Phil, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Before we go, get out of here. Are there places that people can find you or learn more about this on the internet or on social media? Well, we do have a, um, a Twitter account. I think it's, um, I really don't remember the name of that. Our, our students take care of that kind of thing. For <laughs> well, it's just, just well, make sure if you're out there, it's uh, the, it's called the uh, Center for Autonomous Sensing and Sampling. Yeah, we, 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 go, we go by CAS. And also, we also have a web page, which is still in development. It's, it's CAS, C-A-S-S, um, dot O-U, dot E-D-U. Um, so that would be a place to go look for some of our um, developments. I think we have to end it right there. Thank you so much for your time today. And also want to thank the student studio there at the University of Oklahoma, uh, where uh, Phil is coming to us from today. I thank you for the time and space there as well. And Phil, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Yes. And thank you all for listening and joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Uh, We'll see you at the next stop and be sure to continue to subscribe and spread the word about the Weather Geeks podcast. 